We want to take a second to thank you for supporting Womance by listening to our podcast. One great way that you can continue supporting us, including those listens, is hitting subscribe, telling a friend, leaving a review. That stuff all really matters. Sharing it on your personal social media is another great way to spread the word about Womance. And another option for supporting us, if we may be so bold, is to recommend going to our Patreon, where you can donate as little as a dollar a month to help us spread the word of woe. If you want to contribute more than a dollar a month, which obviously no pressure, whatever you've got, we are so appreciative to have, but we have awesome gifts for you. If you want a hand addressed letter from Morgan and Isabeau, maybe with some special woe stickers, other merch, just uh, visit our Patreon. We are Womance on Patreon, or is it patreon.com forward slash Womance? We would be very proud to call you one of our patrons. I'm Morgan. And I'm Isabeau. This is Womance. A podcast about romance novels. About carceral displeasures and carnal pleasures. About the assizes. (laughs) About kindly big men who work the ground. (laughs) (laughs) About the machinations below stairs. About like really actually very, very bad dads. About hot priests who want to be your friend. Most of all, it's about that first thing. Romance novels. And ourselves. ourselves. It's great. It's great. No notes. (laughs) This week we are very excited. This episode we are very excited to talk to each other and to you by proxy about... To Have and to Hold by Patricia Gaffney. Mm-hmm. Written and published in 1995. Before we get into the back of the book, would you like a couple reminders about what was going on in 1995? Or is it still crystal clear in your mind? I would, really. I, I could use the reminders. All right. What do you think won Best Picture? I thought it was Braveheart, but... You always think it's Braveheart. It was 95 or 96. It was Forrest Gump. Oh, God. Fuck. Why? Why Forrest Gump? It's it's a big year for movies. We've talked about it in the past. It's yeah. Four Weddings and a Funeral, Quiz Show, The Shawshank Redemption, and Pulp Fiction were the nominees. Crazy. It is crazy. All in one year. Grammy winners, Jagged Little Pill by Alanis Morissette. Nice. Scream, the Michael Jackson music video mm. that cost like a billion dollars. Kiss from a Rose by Seal. One song of the year and record of the year. Makes sense. I feel like that song should get an honorary song of the year every year. I agree. I'm never sad when it comes on. You know what I mean? I'm like, I'm not going to change the channel on that. Perennial. Starbucks unleashed the Frappuccino Mm. upon the world and we would never be the same. Honestly, that feels bigger than the iPhone. Everyone's always like, the iPhone. And I was like, the Frappuccino. Starbucks said, do you know what we're going to innovate? Coffee. And they did. 
The Frappuccino is like a uniquely American coffee beverage, you know? Yeah, because it's a milkshake with espresso. Now people are going to say in Greece, they have the Frappes. Mm -hmm. Not the same. They don't have a Frappuccino. It's different. Mm -mm. It's It's very different. different. Guess what else? What? Amazon sold its very first book that year in 1995. Look how far we've come. And I know you remember this. Pogs. (laughs) We were in grade school. Pogs. (laughs) We didn't really like do Pogs. They weren't like that big outside of Madison, Wisconsin. They made their way over to Western Kansas and made quite the splash. Mm. Quite the splash. We had rules about them. Mm. I'll tell you what didn't make its way over to Western Kansas for about 10 more years. And that's the Frappuccino. (laughs) 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 A slow glacial slide. Across the country from the Frappuccino. There was a time where Starbucks was not ubiquitous, and it was like a treat to find one. The first Starbucks I ever had was uh, the one that got built, the first one that got built in my hometown, which was inside of Target. Mm-hmm. And there would be lines outside of the Target. For the Frappuccinos. For those Frappuccinos, I would get a white chocolate mocha. Mm-hmm. What a time to be alive. What a time to be alive. I actually, one of my favorite things about Starbucks is that it gifted me this memory of my dad where he's like, what do you want? And I said, well, I want a chai tea latte. He goes, okay. And he like goes up to order and he says, with all the confidence of a Midwestern man with a handlebar mustache, I would like to order two Thai chi lattes. And I'm like a teen at the time, so I'm like, Dad! (laughs) So with that context, the only other context before we get into the story is uh, Morgan and I have been suffering from (sighs) COVID-19. So if you hear us struggling for words or our voices sound strange, that's part of it. Uh, We do. I am suffering from brain fog in a massive way. And also this book is literally bananas. Um, and it, it, it will take us on a bananas discussion. And so I would also like to, at the outset, have a trigger warning. Um, we will be talking about rape, non-consensual sex and violence against women. Um, and so everybody knows to buckle up if that's something that you want to listen to. Um, otherwise we have a, enormous back catalog (laughs) if you want to hear our dulcet tones unimpeded by a virus or the virus of 1995 (laughs) the book to have and to hold i might point you in another direction today not another specific direction because brain fog yeah i was like well it can't be whitney my love maybe the proposition (laughs) no i was in the same position where i was like what is one even tell them I think the proposition is one that I would recommend if you want this vibe. I mean, it's a little bit, yeah, it's still a little bit intense. I think some, yeah, it, it's wild. When you started talking, I was like, have we only ever talked about books that have those trigger words? <laughs> but we haven't. We've, we've, talked about- we've talked about other books, yeah. Although the 90s are weird. The 90s are weird. Mm-hmm. Maybe in a good way. Uh, shall I shall I read the back of the book to you, Isabeau? Please do. I would love that. I'm going to start with the pull quote. Okay. 
an emotional roller coaster complete with a dark, tortured hero, a complex <laughs> heroine, and sex scenes so charged. I was riveted. Riveted is a good word, though. Susan Elizabeth Phillips. Mm. You could listen to our episode on Nobody's Baby But Mine. Yes, you could. There you go. Other trigger warnings. (laughs) Other trigger warnings (laughs) abound in that one. All right. Sebastian Verlaine, the new Viscount to Aubrey, was cynical, sophisticated, and too handsome for his own good. He was also bored. Mm. Why else would he agree to sit on the bench with two fellow magistrates to judge the petty crimes of his tenants and neighbors? It was all a lark. Until a beautiful prisoner came before him, and he realized he held her fate in his hands. Rachel Wade knew everything about helplessness and sexual degradation. Her husband's violent death had freed her from that nightmare. But ten years in prison for his murder was only another kind of torture. Now a jaded Viscount was offering her freedom, but at a price. Housekeeper, he termed her new position at Linton Hall. Lord de Aubrey's whore, the scandalized villagers called it. A ruthless, unkind bargain, but neither of them guessed how the tables could be turned, how a game that began in base desire could lead to a breathtaking gamble in love. Honestly, that is not a bad back of the book. It feels very true to the vibes. It does, and it it doesn't pull the punches Mm -mm. about the content of the book. Like, Yeah, it's not trying to, like obfuscate what this book is going to be about like sexual sexual degradation is on the back of the book that's awesome good good for the back of the book writer honestly that's much better than i anticipated Lit- the the cover art is holographic water mm-hmm. lilies mm-hmm. by uh monet and then the step back is uh, wow that is a step back that's an amazing step back it is an amazing step back the eyeshadow color is pale blue. The dress color is mauve. Mm-hmm. 1995, where's its ugly head? And her blowout is stunting. <laughs> stunting on him with that blowout. And so is he, honestly. He's got like a little scraggly bang. I know what that's like. So does Sebastian Vane. Verlaine. Verlaine. Scraggly bang gang. <laughs> Morgan and Sebastian were laid. If he's so bored, maybe he should work on his bangs. It's probably like he was bored and then he got bangs and then he had regrets. (laughs) And then he had to go to court. Then he had to go to court. (laughs) And be the court. And be the court. Okay, I would actually like to read a couple of scenes from the court. So I went into this entirely uh, cold. Um, Morgan sent me... Uh, list of books and I read like three brief bios this one said that the protagonist had been to prison and I was like I don't think we've ever done that before let's do that that's how this came about Um, so totally cold and we like start at the court scene super cool so (laughs) nobody had a lawyer which made self-defense all but impossible under English jurisprudence the accused wasn't allowed to speak on his own behalf an indefensible system, Sebastian had always thought, and one in which the Americans had clearly improved. I'm like, all right, let's get a dig in the eye of old Mother England right away. Oh my God. Thank you so much, Patri- <laughs> fellow American Patricia Gaffney. Thank you. That's great. Um, 
The poor go to jail for the same crimes, which the rich aren't even charged. That's in reference to the fact that somebody was publicly intoxicated and at this courtroom, they wanted to give him 30 days in the stocks. And Sebastian's thinking to himself, like, I was publicly intoxicated last night. Um, And then we get to Rachel. Accuses Rachel Wait, your worships. Widow charged with indigence and no fixed abode. She was released six days ago from Dartmoor Convict Prison, whereupon she made her way to Dorset, the county of her birth, in her home parish of Ottery St. Mary. She was detained on the 12th of this month and taken before the magistrate who declared her an undesirable and ordered her to quit the county. Accused came to Devon on account of it being the county where her marriage took place. On 16 April, she was taken up again in Wickerley, St. Giles Parish, for not having a place. And what struck me in that reading is like, homelessness was a literal crime at this point in time and homelessness is being criminalized again in this country and i was like i can't believe that i'm reading a romance that is having a conversation with me about the criminalization and the cruelty of like coming out of being incarcerated and not having anywhere to go, and then being rearrested because you have nowhere to go. I was like, boy. At least we have the public defender system. (laughs) But you know what I mean? I was like, I felt 1995, right? And like this book was written at the height of the crime bill, the height of everyone being like tough on crime policies. And like, here's a book who's like, hey, we did that in the 1800s and it didn't work out great. We're still doing It's like criminalizing being a person who's out of prison. Like what is happening in this book? I immediately was like sold on both the character and the commentary that this book was having with me because I didn't feel like I was being lectured. I felt like I was being brought along in a conversation around societies that society hasn't changed that much. And I was like, wow, okay, I'm going to get some learning. And then boy, we fork left. <laughs> we really do. Well, and it's, I do want to know the actual beginning of the book is Sebastian Verlaine uh, dismissing a lover. Mm-hmm. Very cruelly. On his way to sit on the bench. He's like, you got to go. Can't be around you anymore. We had fun, but uh, not that much fun. It's not fun anymore. Yeah, get out of here. See you later, alligator. Not even in a while. And then he's like, criminal injustice system. And then he's like, actually, though, I would fuck that one. That bald one. I want to fuck that one real hard. Can she be my housekeeper? Housekeeper? And you're going to know what I mean by housekeeper because I am going to tell you that I have all of the power over her. And I'm going to tell you right now, house keeper scare quotes so all of our intentions are known and I was like how the fuck did you just give me a character that I was like oh he's like you know he cares about the poor and then just immediately decimate his personal integrity and I was like this was good this is one of my favorite things about Sebastian Verlaine talking about relevance talking about like cogence in our current moment Sebastian Verlaine thinks he's at worst wily. He thinks he's a good guy. Yeah. Just a little mischievous. Mm-hmm. Because he has these political ideas, but then his actual like practice is to be a dick, an asshole. He does nothing really to help her. 
I mean, I mean, yeah, she ends up better off than she would have in a workhouse. Yeah. But like by the skin of her teeth, he had no plans to make her existence decent. No. And he like throws her into this very hard job at an estate that's been allowed to go to pot. And so like she's suddenly in charge of a staff when she's literally just been in prison. She's never been a housekeeper before. She was only married at the tender age of 18 for 10 days. So it's not like she has like a ton of experience running a house. Also, she's literally just gotten out of a pretty intense incarceration situation and he just throws her in he's like these are the keys that you need um i'm gonna stalk you around the house uh like a weird bloodhound and arrive to like spook you and like to sexually to like sexualize you at strange times um be successful at this job or i'll kick you out and you won't have wages and a reference um see what you can do also, the town's going to hate you because they're going to think that you're having sex with me. And, and you're not right now, but you will. Yeah. And he, she also has to report in weekly to the constable's office. She still has to pay a fine for being homeless, um, which is where most of her wages are going towards, I think. And Sebastian, I also want to like the reason he's in this like small charming country town in this small charming country house is because his father is still alive so he hasn't come into his um dukedom in rye he's got like he's got a bigger title and a bigger estate coming exactly this is the one that he gets because his uncle just died and he shows up and like this elderly like twice removed uncle's home is like very dated and like borderline kitschy and the housekeeper's name was Mrs. Fruit. But she ran she ran that little house like the Navy. She did not. Everything, she did not. Was, everything was coming. Everything was in bad shape. <laughs> the maids weren't but, doing their jobs. The there were no footmen. But he's he's in this situation where in general he he's not someone who has ever had to take anything seriously. Not really, because he's come from such great privilege. The the text I think is very conscientious of this because of what Isabeau just described, right? Like he has all of this political high mindedness, but in is in fact just like playing games with people because he can get away with it. Yeah. Rachel gets caught in the kind of undertow of that. Mm-hmm. And Rachel herself, when she was 18 and she got married to this guy who would end up dead 10 days, li- murdered 10 days later. Mm-hmm we get this scene when she first arrives at the house and she has her one personal item is a old family photo. And she thinks about how like beautiful and happy she was. And indeed she was like, as we learn about her life prior to the murder or or the marriage, I should say she was, she was very pretty. She was middle-class. She never really worried about anything and her life seemed to be going really well when her friend's dad proposed to her and she was going to move up in the world. And then her entire sense of self gets ripped asunder before she's even 19 years old because she's ends up married to a sexual sadist who is then murdered. And she's blamed for the murder. She gets leniency because she has to publicly share. Like, no one believes that she did not kill him. So she publicly shares about her ordeal with getting beaten um, and attacked. And 
then she's put in prison, which the book is very explicit about what that experience was like as far as like deconstructing her as a person. And one of the things I think is so interesting about Sebastian and Rachel, you know, we have this idea of like people who have strong personalities. And I think we think of it as like, or I tended to think of it as people who are like loud or rambunctious or like gregarious or like strong personality, like something that comes out to the front. But I think there's also like a strong personality is a personality that can like withstand hardship. And Sebastian in his current state does not have a strong personality. In fact, he feels himself to be drowning. Like one of the things that he's attracted to in Rachel is that she seems untouchable, even though she's essentially behind bars above everyone else at this like courtroom scene. And she seems so entirely above it. Like she is unto herself, totally a a shore he can't touch. And he sees that and he's like, I want to possess that. And since I can't seem to possess it in myself, I will possess her and figure out how to do that for me because I feel disaffected, dissatisfied, and just like, like he's drowning. What's the French word? Ennui. Ennui. Yes, he has all this ennui and he's trying to shake himself loose. And I think ennui is important because when he sees her, he doesn't just see someone who's aloof. He sees a murderess. Yep. Who's aloof. Like, she's the most interesting possible person. But she's none of those things. Like, she likewise, before her her ordeal, did not have a strong personality, right? Like, she was a young person. So she herself feels drowned mm-hmm. and is drowning in that moment in something not even arguably, like, definitely worse than ennui. Like, she's actually gone through it. Um, but they both kind of arrive at each other muffled yes. to themselves and the world. Yes, I think that's a beautiful way of describing it. He's muffled by privilege and ennui. She's muffled by actual hardship. Her flashbacks to prison are as harrowing as her flashbacks to her sexual assaults. Yeah. Even though like sometimes what would happen in prison was just these like long, slow periods of waiting and emptiness, you know. What was so striking to me about this book is the flashbacks to the prison felt Dickensian, not only in their setting and how drab and awful it was, but also just like the extremity of detail and pathos, I think. And I and I mean it in like, it, I think people make fun of Dickens in a way that I don't think is warranted. And in, in this case, my comparison is meant with all of like the care and love I can give it. Like there's this scene where she's like walking in the yard because they get one hour of exercise and they're not allowed to talk and they have to stand six feet away from each other. And it's just like all of these women going in a circle. And like the the explanation of like the cold gray clouds above them, the brown of their clothes, like the, just the not even being able to speak. And then this like dog runs into the yard. Yes. Oh, my God. Oh, my God. And like the way that her face lights up when she's talking about the dog and like that she could pet the do- and like it's so clear that she held on to the- she held on to the details of this dog for so long. Like I'm getting goosebumps even like recalling it. Right. And just like it's that kind of thing. Like when uh, it's like 
in um, Jane Eyre when she goes and sleeps next to her little best friend who's dying of tuberculosis. And, you know, just it, it, you could feel the burlap of their awful prison uniforms and how cold she was from the inside out. And then this dog just like runs. It, it's just, it's such an incredible scene to read in a quote unquote lowercase literature. And I think, like, that's one of the things about this book that really reminded me that, like, romance has very important things to say about the human condition. And it Mm -hmm. says them in ways that oftentimes to an outsider or maybe even just others who aren't paying close attention, that it feels Baroque or like a soap opera. But, like, there was something so essentially human and timeless about that, that, like transcends genre and transcends like and I was like this book is transcendent how have I not read it before and then it takes like another fucking left turn (laughs) so I think like when you say Dickensian you mean this like very empathetic view of people going through hardship that still allows like you would fixate on this wonderful time that a dog like you would remember that more than the time you were almost smothered by the prison guard you know or as much like that would be as vivid and real to you like this good experience and I think Dickens and Gaffney if I may be so bold do this wonderful job of sharing telling both giving both sides of that experience equal weight yes an equal measure and take it very seriously yeah. Um, it's not patronizing. This isn't like a let me show you the wounds so that you so you can learn something, you isolated human not in it. And it's 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 in it's in that way. It's just this extreme empathy and like a perfect depiction of the human condition. And you're exactly right. It's like it's the it's the almost smothering of the prison guard mixed also then with the warmth of this like dog tongue on her cheek that she just carries with her for as long as she can. The thing about it, right, like a lot of times texts, speaking for the sake of our podcast about romance novels, like these scenes of like violence, degradation, are proselytizing Mm -hmm. or condescending in some way. Like, oh, woe is me. And this book avoids that. But this book is also always, because of Rachel's circumstances, filled with people who just want to ogle the pain, like a pain circus. There's a really key moment in the book where he invites like three quasi-friends to the mansion and allows them to ask her any question, and she decides she'll answer them all directly because what does she have to lose? Um, And they just get like so fired up by like hearing about her so turned on so titillated by hearing her account of her experience um that they like work themselves into a frenzy a lather but not just that but she also talks about like being in court Mm -hmm. and people like wanting to know everything about what her husband did to her and like once again working themselves into a frenzy and so it it shows you at once while it's giving you, it's in Rachel's mind remembering these things that happened. 
it's also giving you her, the reactions of people hearing that and not having empathy. Like that's such a, that's such a pirouette (laughs) because as a reader, you're like, oh my God, this is, this is awful. And like you said, and then you get chills and goosebumps and you're elated to hear about the dog. But then the people at the dinner don't even remember the dog. And they move on to the next brutal question about like, well, how big was your cell? How much, how many, like how many candles could you have? Like, what was the food? Like, were the guards beating you? How, how did they beat you? And it was, in, in the way that like the pain circus, as you call these bad friends, like they were ready to rip her apart for their own pleasure. And the pleasure was hearing about her pain. I also think there's like, another side of this towards the end of the book where she finds herself in legal trouble again and people from the community want to testify on her behalf and they say I I don't think she did this but they're not able to provide a narrative and so it is completely uninteresting to the court they can just say like I think she's she said this word and so I don't think she was trying to leave forever. I think she was just inquiring at the dock. She wasn't trying to like evade capture. Like she said this one word and I don't think she's the type of person. And they're like, okay, t- but like no one is able to tell a specific story about Rachel because Rachel just simply is decent. And that makes a less interesting story, not just in court records, but in all records. <laughs> and in that way is rendered both vulnerable invisible and like hopeless hopeless in the eyes of the court absolutely that scene is really intense oh my god it's awful the other powerful part about it is that you as the reader have not seen what she was doing yep and so you are all you also feel inarticulate to defend her Mm -hmm. because we've been with sebastian i mean very technically good (laughs) Very technically good. <laughs> keeping surprises. Honestly, this book is so, uh, you know, I we can just keep talking about it. One of the things that's crazy to me about this book is that we have Sebastian, who's progressive, quote unquote, uh, policies and worldviews come right up against his ennui and assholery. Like at no point in the first half is there any question in his mind or in Rachel's mind that he is going to collect a physical sexual price for freeing her? And he does this weird conversation with himself and with her for about six weeks where he just like sort of like stalks her in the house, which is both terrifying to her and like mean. And he knows it's mean, which is part of the reason why he does it. And so finally, after about six weeks, he's like, I can't stand it anymore we're going to have sex. And she's like, I don't want to have sex with you. And he's like, it'll be better if we just get it over with. Like, you know, you're, you're afraid of me. And like, you know, that's fair, but like, we're just going to have sex now. And she's crying. And he's like, don't make this a rape. And I was like, I can't believe that a romance writer wrote that sentence. Don't make this a rape. And then he does rape her, have sex with her without her consent multiple times that night. And I know as a reader of romance, 
that this writer is going to have to redeem this fucker. And I'm like, there's no way. There's absolutely no fucking way that this can happen. There's like, what the fuck did I just read is how I felt in that moment. I w- it was shocking to me. And we read we read the devil and the whatever. What a, like the flesh and the devil. Flesh and the devil. Yeah. I mean, we read uh Joanna Lindsay's Pirate's Love, which is we do oh not my recommend. God. <laughs> we do not under any circumstances. You know, also Woodywis. Like this book is he's it he's not confused, right? Woodywis except in Shanna, like he's not confused. Because of like there, the book does not seek to redeem him Mm-mm. in this way. It's not interested in it, which was also shocking. Yeah, because with other bodice rippers, there's like an extenuating circumstances. They thought she was a streetwalker. They thought that she was a cabin boy. They thought that <laughs> they interpreted her moans as sounds of pleasure. Even yeah, this is not that. He just feels entitled to her, mm-hmm. and he also. Um, I have the scene open in my book right now and kind of a a light quote from it. She was staring straight ahead, but he didn't think she was seeing him. It's from his perspective also. But he didn't think she was seeing him. She directed a kind of visual wall to keep him away from her. To test the wall's thickness, he began to take his clothes off, boots first, then shirt, then trousers. Before he finished, she turned her face away, gazing off toward the flickering candle flame. So much for her visual wall. And that's when he tells her to not make it a rape. But it is, and he does. Yeah, he says the sight of her pale, wide-apart thighs excited him. There was no point in telling her again to relax. Like, partway through, he's like, well, this is just going to be what it's going to be. It's, it's, very, it's very graphic, but it likewise doesn't do that thing where it's like a sex scene to get through. Like it lingers. Talks about the the tendons in her thighs vibrating. Like it's written as other kind of passionate love scenes, I guess, are written. Where you get the the stuff that we call female gazy whenever we talk about on this podcast, whenever we talk about sex scenes where it's like hyper fixated on like a single feature that shows how, how affected and affecting you are as a lover, right? Like in any other context, someone noticing the tendons in your thighs, but it's because she's clenched so tight because she's so weary and afraid of what's about to happen. Not only because she doesn't want to have sex with him, but because of all of her past experiences with sex have been brutal and violent. He becomes obsessed with like these marks on her back and he wants, he pain circus wants her to tell him everything about it. And so I think that brings, so having said all of this, (laughs) like this really intense scene leads us to, leads me to this idea of redemption. It has to. This has to. Has Has to. to. Because it is a romance novel. Mm -hmm. But I think so often in Bodice Rippers, the redemption is it's really hard to have a, a satisfying redemption to a reader of our age in our age i should say it's really hard to do i found his redemption 
arc, very satisfying. Say more. I, by the end of the book, was happy for them when they ended up happy together. Where did the redemption arc for you begin to become satisfying? At the, well, okay, look, I know I'm gullible, all right? I know I'm a sap. You say this about yourself, and I, like, don't think it's true. I don't know why you say this about yourself. I will let a, I will let a book lead me around by my nose. That's true. So, like, of course I find the redemption arc to start to be satisfying the second it starts in the bathtub. Now, it is a bathtub scene. It's a bathtub scene. This is your catnip. So I was especially proud. You do love a bathtub. Sebastian feels affected by having, because he himself doesn't see himself as a rapist. He, he says, does. Right? He does not want to see himself as a rapist, and he does not want to see himself in the role of her abusive husband, even though he understands uh, pretty clearly that, like, the pleasure point of giving pain. Um, he knows, he recognizes that pretty immediately. Um, but he does not want to be classed in that space. No, he is frustrated because they continue on with their professional relationship and she's afraid to be in a room with him. And he's frustrated by that um, because it's breaking his I'm a good guy persona. Like everyone talks about nice guys. And yeah, like nice guys are people who who self-proclaim. But there are lots of men who say they're good guys and are the exact same way. And I think he... <laughs> He is definitely someone who sees himself as a good guy. And I, he invites over these awful, boring friends, I think, in an attempt to show her that he's not so bad. Yes. Like, he wants her to see how, like, boring and awful, really boring and awful people are. Yes. And entitled and privileged and that he's not like this. I mean, he's like this, but he's not like this. Yeah. He's like of it, but not in it. And he he invites them in part because he wants them to break her open because he wants all of the details, but she won't give them to him and he won't press her. That's what part of makes him good man. But he wants all those details. He wants them as bad as the pain circus does. So he invites them for a couple of reasons, only one or two of which he admits to himself, which is bananas. Because like what then happens in this in this crazy scene is like he's getting super drunk because he's so uncomfortable and he's like as we talked about earlier like you know he he's receiving a mirror and he hates it and so now he's like drunk seeing himself and his terrible friends and then one of them is like is she yours because if she's not i'm gonna go fuck her and he's like no she's not mine i don't own her missing the key part and then like in his drunken haze, here, like, reads it back to himself, saves her from an attempted rape by one of his friends, and then there's this pretty violent fight scene. A knife fight? A gentry knife fight? <laughs> that ends up in the rain outside, and, like, he wishes that his friend had stabbed him harder because he feels so bad. But he, he goes into recovery and, like, refuses to see her. I find, found this to be a very... uh when they when they cry out for help, mm -hmm. <laughs> that makes it less convincing to me that they feel bad. And he really, really, really resists her help. Um, and then he thinks he's going to die. 
So he has to tell her he feels bad in the bathtub. And instead she tenderly menstruates. He's like, I want to die. Because he, he realizes in the shock of being stabbed in the arm that he is a, he's, he is a bad person. <laughs> he's a bad person who has done bad things to a person that doesn't deserve it. And he has to then live. He has to live with that. And he hates it, right? Like it's, I think where the satisfaction starts to become is like, here's a person who is taking personal responsibility. And I will say that like, I was not on board for this apology because it wasn't uh, self-deprecating enough and it didn't grovel enough. I, you know, I've never been one for the groveling apology. And so I think one of the reasons I appreciated his redemption arc is that he really seeks to like know her on her own terms I thought you would ask me why I hated it he said after a moment looking at her why I finally stopped it I'll tell you even though you won't ask it's because I saw myself when I looked at Sully and the others heard my voice and their voices what they did was despicable and defensible and they were the mirror of me I could see it clearly and it revolted me I was glad when Sully drew the knife because that gave me permission to kill him I wanted to kill him, wring his neck, stop his heart. You won't believe it, but I know that it was the vileness in myself I really wanted to kill. Like, that just speaks to so much self-awareness <laughs> and regret and pain. When he's he's very feverish and bad after getting uh, stabbed. And they have this, like, quasi-dream-like sex scene. And they have this conversation laying in bed next to one another and it's just getting, like, sweatier and sweatier. They lay without touching until she put her hand on his shoulder. Afterward, she knew it had been the signal, that he couldn't touch her until she touched him, because that was their rule. Why didn't I do this sooner, she thought, or said. And the empty-handed man smiled just before he kissed her. Are you... This is the part I think you're going to dislike. Are you in pain, she whispered, your side. I won't touch you, I said. Now I could tell you I'm sorry. Would you believe me? I don't know. I'm not sure. She felt his breath on the nape of her neck. He was laughing. Sweet Rachel, he murmured. It would be a lie. Arrogant as always, she did something she'd never done before. She had initiated a kiss on his fingertips, which were entwined with hers. After that scene, the time they spend together is very cute. So and very cute. flirty. So flirty. I mean, it's weird because like a lot of things happen, right? Where he's like... I want you to do something. What is it? She asked warily. I want you never to call me your Lord again, never again, alone or with others. Um, I wouldn't presume to name what you, and I, what you and I have been to each other, but I think even you will admit that we are something and whatever it has been intimate enough to warrant dispensing with titles. And then she immediately claps back with, my Lord, you're ill. <laughs> I just, it's so hard not to love Rachel. And then he says, like, why aren't you, why aren't you angry? Why are you here? How could you tie a bandage around me and then lie down with me in this bed? And I'm like, fair question. A question I, myself, the reader, am asking is like, are you mad or that compassionate, that foolhardy? And then she gives him this thing about prison, about in that first year about her anger 
and how like her anger became dangerous and a tool that the the incarceration system you used against her so, but but this was did it ever become did the redemption arc ever hit for you ever land so it begins to land here for me right where it's like so the same place yeah like i'm I was like, whatever about the bath. I was like, whatever about them lying down to each other or lying next but to each other. But this is the same, this it, is the same scene. It's all, it's all part. Like, I would say that I wasn't on this boat. Like, even at the end of this chapter, like, I as a reader was angry with her for not wanting a pound of flesh. But, like, what I understand about this chapter being so deft and so good at what it does is, like, so he talks about, like, wanting to kill Sully, but really wanting to kill himself because it's this vile, this vileness, this ennui, this, like, real malevolence, this dissonance between his progressive ideas about himself and, like, what he actually does. And then she gives him a same kind of story. You called it earlier in the episode a muffling Right. Where she's like, I had to muffle my anger. I had to muffle myself. And then at the end of the chapter, he says to her, you erased yourself, Sebastian said. And she said, yes, that's it. Exactly. I killed myself without dying. And even though I wasn't satisfied with his apology yet or that like this scene of mutual recognition is incredibly well done. And it's so long and it's so, it takes its time correctly. So even though I wouldn't say that, like, I was satisfied, I understood that the characters were and that was authentic. She has this moment shortly thereafter where she, he he asks her who she thinks killed Wade and she had never proclaimed her innocence or anything. She talks about how shock, jarring that is for her, a, a question that is for her, because even her own family thought that she had killed her husband. Um, and he says, and this is where we get into classic, universal romance territory. Like, over the course of this chapter, we have gone from, like, bodice ripper into... Very easy, beautiful gradations. Beautiful all the gradations. Way Impossible, he said lightly, stroking her hair like a father, rocking her a little. I always knew it. I doubt if you could kill an insect. You're the gentlest person I know, and the saddest. Stop, or she wouldn't be able to stop crying. She feels seen for the first time <laughs> and understood for who she is by him. Um, and because, you know, and I think partially because she has been through such wretchedness and such torment that I don't think he could come to see her or understand her without seeing and understanding his own wretchedness and his own callousness first. And I think you have to be that bad of a person. I think he had to be in this book that bad of a person to come to, to be able to meet her. Like, the stakes had to meet. He, you know, we ha it's a historical romance. And by, by virtue of it being a historical romance, he has to be a very fancy Duke boy. And I love that his, like, his horror 
is that he is this great Duke boy. It's not that his parents were eaten by wolves out of a carriage or something like, like some freak accident. It is his very nature. And he has to be brought to confront his very nature to meet, to be remotely worthy of her, right? To meet her on any level and to understand what she needs, which he decides is two things. She needs to come and she needs to laugh. And he's like, I would like to be responsible for those two things. So he gets her a dog. I also like, because the other thing in getting her to come and getting her to laugh is that there's, he learns something so important about autonomy and like how it operates between the two of them to be in a coupledom. Like she has to have like a, like a specific kind of autonomy, both between their sexual relations, but also like in her person. And so like she keeps her rooms as the housekeeper, like she has to touch him first and like the book does so much to like break him down out of his like abhorrent self and like then the chapters are like from his perspective are less about his internality and much more about his witnessing and that becomes a very interesting read like neither of them had personalities to begin with right and it's interesting to watch them build themselves and each other together it's very satisfying that part is very satisfying and it's summer in like south england and like they take all these long rambling walks outside and they're like wildflowers blooming all the time they have these like different instances of confidence building there are failures like when he takes her to the hat shop that's briefly brilliant and ultimately disappointing. To me, that story is unlike a lot of romances where people are two fully formed people who just need to understand each other and get past their communication differences um, or something like that. And this is really two people who don't know how to exist but have by circumstance in Rachel's case or by choice in Sebastian's case decided to that they were going to live outside of the the norms and expectations that they've given themselves right and like what does it mean to exist like that dare I say it's a straight queer love story (laughs) I I daren't but there is something about like she is initially very comfortable with the idea of being his mistress Mm -hmm. forever. She's fine with that. And she thinks that that's a a good existence. She starts to fall in love with him Mm -hmm. and it gets harder. They go on a trip together Mm -hmm. and they pretend to be husband and wife. Mm -hmm. And she starts to be a little sad, but there's this wonderful like moment where who she was before her marriage and who she has built herself into over the course of this, like, probably six weeks. Yeah, like, an impossibly short amount of time. (laughs) Kind of clicks into place. So she's in trouble with the law again, and the local parson suggests to Sebastian in front of her, like, you could probably protect her if you marry her because you're a duke now. Like, they won't arrest a duchess. And he's so, like, taken aback by that idea because who he is was a libertine, right? Like he was never going to get married. So he he calls it like such an extraordinary idea. And he laughs. He reverts, right? But she also kind of reverts where she's 
she later on in the book says, like, I'm too middle class to not want to be married to you. I, I can't be that person. That's what I want. I want you to take me seriously. I I can't be this de-essentialized, right? And she knows that about herself and is able to say it. Her getting mad at him about that, I found that actually one of the more liberating arguments for marriage. <laughs> that She's like, you know, like, I... I am who I am and this is what I want. She's like asking for something that she wanted before everything awful happened to her because she still is that person and she's not trying to stuff that part of herself down anymore. Once again, the stakes remain lofty. I, I love that you're like that he reverted, right? That he he laughs. What an extraordinary idea. But it's because he's so taken aback because like he hasn't even admitted to himself like how big his feelings are for her and like what he wants is an exclusive and monogamous relationship with her forever he has admitted that to himself but he he keeps hedging because he's afraid she won't reciprocate right and like that feels like classic romance miscommunication then he like he understands immediately that he's like stepped all over her pride and like he he's like truly fucked up and he feels really bad about it and he like tries to explain that he has to leave because his dad is dead and he has to go wrap up the estate and so then like the plot gets in the way of him being explaining himself fully in a way that she could hear because she's like it's so funny that you'd marry me and he's like yes of course it's hilarious like you're a murderess and like look at me i'm a callow sour you know, fuck. And she's like, that's not what this is. And he's like, I got to go bury my dad. (laughs) It's a a very like, it's a very 2023 thing to have happen where (laughs) someone's like, I am above bourgeois, (laughs) speaking for myself, bourgeois concepts like matrimony. Mm-hmm. He he says I he loves her. He knows he loves her. He knows he wants to be only with her forever. He feels that way. But he also feels like marriage is inconsequential. And to do so is like a betrayal of, of how he understands himself, right? So he has to go home and see his mother and his sister. Right, because they have bad marriages. And realize that like, their marriages cannot define him. If that's what she wants, why wouldn't he give that to her? He'd give her anything, right? Which is, you know, it's not saying like, it's not a romance novel that says like, and marriage is the truest form of this. It's a romance novel that says like, you have norms <laughs> ingrained in you and like they're they're going to rear their head. Yeah, it's it's very meta. <laughs> Especially for 1995. Speaking of him going home and marriages, that brings up my weirdest part of the book. Okay. So I I find this book to be very interested in, if not deconstruction, then like at least Mm x-rays of what's going on. The sexual politics, though, are interesting. Mm -hmm. Sebastian is like very insistent early on that like even though her husband was this like bad sadist, like you can be a good sadist. And it does kind of gesture towards that. There's a scene where there's some light bondage, exceedingly light bondage. With water lilies, in fact. And it never comes back up. It never comes back up. It's never pushed. It doesn't become like a part of their regular repertoire. It's kind of seen as a tool and a means to an end and then is immediately moved away from. Likewise, 
when he's visiting his mother, he recalls that when he was 15, he walked in on her, he walked into the stables and she was with two stable hands at once. And the book is very disapproving of that. Very. He's like, not only was it like one, one other lover, it was two. He talks about his sister being quite depraved as well. And she is, she, he walks in on his sister having sex and she invites him to join, uh, which I would say is a taboo for a reason. But this is a book that kind of sees like all kink or all sexual adventure. Any, any sex that occurs outside of a monogamous committed relationship is problematic, problematic in this book is problematized by this text. And that was a weird part for me. I think that is weird. I would, I would also like piggybacking on this, like a scene that in the second scene of rape, which is insane because it all happens at the same, but they like move locations. Like the first one's in the library and then the second one's in his bedroom. He puts a finger up her bum, like after like putting this like, like eucalyptus, like lube all over him. There's like this. Yeah. It just spends so much time talking about the salve and like all the stuff that he's doing. Like he's trying to like get her into it. Also like a eucalyptus salve on your labia sounds pretty intense. Yeah, it sounds very intense. And he puts it up her bum. And I was like, I get the sense that I am supposed to be titillated, but this is a scene of rape. And like no butt play ever comes up again. So I was like, I felt like you where I'm like, why is this written in a way that is supposed to be sexy and titillating, but in a, in a scene of violence. And then in the scenes later, like there's no discussion of this as a site of like fun. I see what you're saying, but I did find that scene titillating. It was crazy. I don't think the scene where he's reflecting on the time he walked in on his mother is meant to be titillating, nor is it. And like the scene where he even talks about his, uh, the woman house guest and how she's hooked up with all three of the men in the room, right? Like that's not meant to be titillating. No. And it's not. It's, it's very like finger waggy. Mm-hmm. It's very finger waggy. Um, but it does, you know, depict, it does go on to, it has very sensual writing about rape, <laughs> But his mom, totally consensually in an Eiffel Tower with two stable hands, is like, can you believe it? (laughs) I mean, we could, like, I agree with you. I, like, I mean, I think part of the unacceptability, like, you know, if I want to give him the benefit of the doubt is, like, you can't have sex with the help because they can't really consent. But I don't think that's what's happening in the text. I think it's, like, truly. No, also, the help can consent. <laughs> Stable hands can consent. I mean, not with all, like, she's the lady of the house. She's a duchess. Can they really consent? Like, what would happen if they said no? There's there's power dynamics and there's the ability to consent, which defines rape. So I don't think it's rape if the lady of the house has sex with the stable hands, two of them at once. I just don't think you should be having sex with the help. I think that's like... Why? Stop saying the help. Someone is going to isolate the audio of you saying, I just don't think you should be having sex with the help. And you know how that's going to (laughs) sound. You don't sound like you're for liberation and sexual equality. You... I mean, you can't, you should not have sex with the hip. For they are me as stable hands. How could they possibly consent? Point stands. 
I like I like I stand by that. I don't think no, you should have yeah, sex no, with her. Boy. No, that's that's wrong. <laughs> that's like that's like you have just you have doubled down on Dorkin somehow with that statement. Even a broken clock's right twice a day. You know what I mean? It can't just be an uneven power dynamic that creates rape. Because if that were true, Dworkin is right. That's her argument that like all sex, heterosexual sex is rape because a woman is never on an equal playing field power wise to a man. Sure, that is her argument. But my argument here about like a stable hand in Victorian England is that two like, stable hands, two stable hands in Victorian England. It's like, I just don't think that they can give full consent in the way that somebody who isn't writing their checks. Do you think they can say no? No, I don't think they can say no. That's my point. I don't think that in that situation, if the Duchess shows up at the bar and is like, Hey, handsome 17 year old stable hand, you're going to fuck me. It's like, I don't think that, that person in this text can say no. In this text, that person in this text, we know nothing about these stable hands behind besides the fact that there's two of them and they're both having sex with his mom in the barn. I feel like we're getting lost in the weeds here. My whole thing was like, if we want to give Sebastian the potential benefit of the doubt about not just being icked out by his seeing his mom in a threesome it's like maybe this was part of his progressive politics man I hope you have some eucalyptus salve if you're making that stretch I it was a benefit of the doubt we're too far in the weeds now anyway your weirdest part is the like how titillating the the second part of the rape scene is yeah I don't know. I like, I don't know what to do with it. I mean, I th- like, I think I know what it's doing. And like, it was, it was insane to me. It was insane to me. What do you think it's doing? It's trying to set. And like, she says it herself, like later, like the next morning. And she's like, can I call that a rape? Cause it's different than being violently raped by like my ex murdered husband. Um, and she calls it something else. And like, she's making, distinctions in her mind relief that it was over ward with hurt and anger and a wrenching bottomless dissatisfaction a brand new legacy and something else she could hate him for she wriggled out from under his wet spent panting body and rolled away from him as far as she could go there's a part where she's where she's parsing the scene itself and says like well it's not the same and i was like this is interesting because like this is for me like that was the first part of the the move on the redemption roller coaster. What, what was your sexiest part? I like the big scene at the end, the big courtroom scene where he comes in to like save the day and be like, I'm going to marry you. And she's like, he's mistaken. He's not going to marry me. <laughs> I'm going to go to Canada. Um, I really liked that. I thought it was really sexy that he's like, I'm like, I'm going to marry you. And she's like, no, I, I loved that. Um, I also very much loved the water lilies bondage sex scene at the edge of the water. thought that was really sexy. Sex scene. The sexiest sex scene. Well, you said sexiest part, and I, like, I love right. it when people talk at each other. Yeah, so in terms of the sex scene, I thought, like, they're, you know, very soft, sepia-toned 
foray into water lily bondage was very nice like everything's warm everything's soft so it's a scene in a garden they are in love with one one another at that point and i believe she shares the good news that she no longer has to report for parole Mm -hmm. which is not called parole but something else it's also a lie but spoiler alerts (laughs) (laughs) he ties her hands above her head using just lily leaves and that's the first time she has an orgasm spoiler alert it works out he also makes her laugh why not why not spoil the whole book he achieves both of his goals what was your sexiest part you know i will say that second part with the eucalyptus salve is up there it's very sexy is up there but yeah i think my sexiest part is listen i'm just like i don't know Right. Like that was like I was reading it and I was like, I don't I don't know. But okay, in defense of the eucalyptus salve scene, she has this very specific context of sex, which is awful. Yeah. (laughs) And he's like continued that trend. Um, But he sets about, I think, wrong, wrong headedly. But he thinks he's a good guy. But I think the I'm trying to contextualize for people. So no one thinks I'm a bad person. Uh huh. He's talking, he's trying to like decontextualize, I think, expectations for sex. So he like puts eucalyptus salve in her belly button and like massages her and then eventually penetrates her. Um, And yeah, puts a finger in her ass uh, there at the end. And I think it's quite a bold telling of a sex scene. Uh, I, I like that it's so bold. I like that it's so talks about stretching and like sensation and it does at least in the beginning kind of decontextualize expectations for uh, sex in a romance novel. It's pretty especially for 1995. Maybe I'm giving it too much credit. I don't think we are. I think it was insane. Insane. Romance or no man's. I think this is a womance. I think this might be my favorite. Ever? Ever. Wow. You look deeply skeptical. Honestly, this is a top 10 for me. This top is a 10? Book I'm going to return to. It is such a womance. It was a womance against my will. It was a womance that I was entirely not on board for for half and then like rescued um, I one clicked the first one immediately after finishing this one, uh, which is about the hot priest, um, which was great. And then I got the third one in the series, which I haven't started yet, but like I Church of England priest, by the way, for anyone, don't get too excited. Don't get too excited. He's not Catholic. <laughs> um, although the Anglicans have a lot of cool costumes too. Uh, no, so good. It's just, it was bonkers to me how deft and beautiful and smart and just like, what a fucking journey. Like it was truly a roller coaster. And I don't, I don't feel like I've, I've been in stronger hands in a while. Like, boy, Patricia Gaffney's a writer. I I think she has this, like, I think this text in particular has a real interest in in empathy and I think that's how it lands so much like it really understands its characters I did see the ending the resolution to the murder mystery a mile away down to like the deep dark reveal yeah Um, but I I think 
it's not about surprising you in that way. I think it's about the other things that happened, her her decision to leave or stay, his decision to leave or stay, how they reconcile what they're doing with one another is really where like the, the, the friction and the zest comes from. And I think there's also, you know, maybe some undue friction and zest added to it by the fact that, like you said, against my will, right? Like we don't set out to read books to not like them, but there's a certain expectation when the first sex scene is like, when the first sex scene, sex scene is a rape, and is that insistent on what it is and that clear-eyed about it? It makes it really hard as a reader. And so I think this is just a text that's very interested in the internality of its characters. It has just a softness to it. In spite of all of the kind of edginess that it definitely holds, there is just like a softness to it. I feel like this like watercolor cover is kind of perfect, even though the back of the book is so at odds mm-hmm. <laughs> with it. It's, it's kind of like the perfect uh, encapsulation of like the dissonance in this text. Yeah, it's a very dissonant text. So, so, so good. <laughs> so good to read. Impossible to put down, just like propelled. Um, the pull quote that you read at the very beginning, riveted. I did. I felt like I was riveted to this text, like a piece of iron with a bolt and like it has this like it's like devil in the white city where you think like the most interesting thing is going to be the serial killer but it's in fact like all of this other stuff around creating a world's fair that becomes way more interesting the same thing happens in this book Uh, to me that's why it's kind of shuffling everything else lower on the list because everything else has these wonderful set pieces that carry it all the way through and this is really just the relationship between two people depicted and handled like no other text i've read it's unique so it's so a double womance double womance anything else uh shimmering through the brain fog for you on this one uh no i think everyone should read it everyone everyone and then world peace will be realized we might have a better conversation about what redemption looks like, though. I find that the reason why I like big, long-winded, terrible apologies is because <laughs> I am not, I, like, true statement, I'm not a particularly forgiving person. Mm-hmm. And so someone giving the right kind of apology in the right way for me personally, almost like a love language, But, like, that's a personal failure of mine. Maybe if I was more forgiving, maybe if I was like Rachel in this book, I would be a happier person. As a verbose liar, (laughs) I don't like long-winded apologies because I'm like, I could say that. Anybody could say that. (laughs) And so that's why I like that he's like, I'm not sorry. I'm like, okay. (laughs) Okay, cowboy. I would much rather receive a Labrador than a verbose apology. I don't want to live in that binary. I want both. I want the <laughs> I dog and... And, I, and Isabeau still won't forgive your ass. Probably not. Not right away. No. She'll yeah. keep it. She's She'll still keep that little nugget in her back pocket. Throw in your face. Yeah. People have called it the curse of an Irish memory. You only remember the grudges. Is that true? That's what people have called it. I've never heard that. Mm. 
I also don't think it's true. I've never met an Irish person who was like, let me tell you the list of grudges that I hold. So seems like, you know, seems like something they would keep close to the chest, though. No, (laughs) it seems like some of that anti-Irish sentiment Uh, with that. Loosen your stays, but never your principles. Woli guacamole, everyone. Thanks for listening to another episode of Womance. Womance is hosted, produced, and edited by my friend Morgan. And by my friend Isabel. Our logo artwork is by another friend, Mary Reichman. You can find her on Instagram at m.reichman, spelled R-E-I-S-C-H-M-A-N-N. Original music by Nick Gravelin. And our webmistress is Jane Bonzak. They're the best. You're also the best. We so appreciate your support by listening. Please consider taking this to the next level by following, rating, and reviewing. We read every single review. Or even check us out on Patreon. If you'd like more woe in your life, you can connect with us on Instagram at womans and on Twitter where we are at mans underscore woe. Or you can find more episodes and content at womanspodcast.com. If you have an idea or just want to reach out, please email womancemail at gmail.com. We'd love to hear from you. Womance is a part of the Frolic Podcast Network. Find more podcasts to add to your romance collection at frolic.media backslash podcasts. Until next time.